Today's reading is from Zechariah 3, 1 through 10. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, with Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. May the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Isn't this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed with filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. So the angel of the Lord spoke to those standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to him, See, I have removed your guilt from you, and I will clothe you with splendid robes. Then I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So a clean turban was placed on his head, and they clothed him in garments, while the angel of the Lord was standing nearby. Then the angel of the Lord charged Joshua, This is what the Lord of hosts says. If you walk in my ways and keep my instructions, you will both rule my house and take care of my courts. I will also grant you access among those who are standing here. Listen, Joshua the high priest, you and your colleagues sitting before you. Indeed, these men are a sign that I am about to bring my servant, the branch. Notice the stone I have set before Joshua. On that one stone are seven eyes. I will engrave an inscription on it. This is the declaration of the Lord of hosts. And I will take away the guilt of the land in a single day. And on that day, each of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and fig tree. This is the declaration of the Lord of the hosts. This is the word of the Lord. Would you remain standing? Boom. On cue. Uh, Remain standing. We'll pray together. Um, Was it pure energy or was it libation? Unless you serve and were there, you'll never know. (laughs) You know, every now and then, someone's got to get the party hype, right? And uh, it's all about serving. You got to have the heart of a servant. So sometimes you just got to roll with it. Um, Let's pray because we need Jesus after that. So thank you, Lord, that you're here with us. Thank you for your word that is inspired by your Holy Spirit. And thank you that you're here and you're the searcher of hearts. You know our thoughts. You know our dreams. You know our hopes. You know our doubts and fears. And in this crazy passage that we have in front of us, we ask that you would speak to us, Holy Spirit, and that you would bring transformation that we desire into our lives and our relationships, our fears, our doubts, and our dreams. And we pray that you would spread that in the places where we work and we live and where we relate. We ask this in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. It's great to be with you guys. If we haven't met already, my name is Al, and I'm privileged to share from this wild passage in Zechariah chapter 3. I was in uh, London last Sunday sharing with Reality London. They give you their love, and I shared from this passage, but then yesterday I completely reworked it or reworked the majority of it because I felt like God was taking us in a different direction. Zechariah was a prophet around 600 years before the birth of Jesus. His name means the Lord remembers. But I imagine that Israel feels like it's not true. I imagine most of Israel, particularly Judah, the land that he serves in, they feel like, ah, it feels like God has forgotten. They've been in exile for a number of years at this point. They were sent to exile into Babylon because of 
their own disregard of God's word and refusing to honor God and follow his ways. And so true to his word, God exiled them to Babylon for 70 years. His goal is not that they would be banished. His goal is that they would be brought back to him through faith and repentance, which is why at the beginning of the book, God pleads through the prophet Zechariah, return to me and I'll return to you. It's been a long time since they've felt the presence of God, though. Seventy years in exile, 70 years without the word of the Lord coming to you, you'll begin to wonder if the Lord actually does remember. And I imagine that there's some of us in here who actually can relate to Judah, the tribe of Israel that has been banished. Maybe you also wonder if God has forgotten you. Maybe it's because of choices that you've made, like Judah, that you wonder if God has forgotten you. Maybe it's because of some dreams that have died in your life. Maybe because of health issues or because of relationship issues or the lack of relationships and friendships that you wonder, this is the prayer request that I've had for so long, it feels like you have forgotten me. I don't know any of my friends who have followed Jesus for any number of years who have never felt that sentiment, I wonder if God has forgotten about me. Maybe it's because of prayers that seem to have gone unanswered. When those moments we can feel that we need something or someone tangible to hope in. Just need that thing that I can look at and say, well, at least I can hope in that. And thankfully for Israel, they still have Joshua. Joshua in this chapter is the high priest of Israel. His job is to represent God before the people and to represent the people before God. He's the one to make sacrifices with animals in atonement for sins. He's the one to pray on their behalf. He's the one that people think we might be screwed up, but at least we still got the priest. Spiritually speaking, he's the best of the best. I mean, his name even means Yahweh saves. But even their best hope to be right with God ultimately isn't good enough. I have a friend who likes to say, Al, honestly, the grass is brown everywhere. And what he means by that is if you put your ultimate hope in people or in organizations or partners or even priests, you'll ultimately be let down. And Zechariah certainly discovers that because in this chapter in his journal, Zechariah is given a behind-the-scenes look into the spiritual realm. God pulls the curtain back for Zechariah to see what's really going on in the people of God and even in the best of the best, and it's startling. Because there's two things Zechariah sees that are deeply disturbing. One is spiritual conflict, and two is spiritual clothing. Verses 1 through 2, he sees a fierce spiritual conflict. In this vision, the first thing Zechariah sees is Joshua, the high priest of Israel. And he's standing before someone called the angel of the Lord. I want you to remember that. Verse 1, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord with Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. 
Again, the wording suggests that Joshua is tending to the temple. He's doing his priestly duties. Little Nacho Libre quote for you there. You should check it out. And as he's doing what priests do, again, he's ordering the sacrifices, serving in the temple. He's the man when it comes to spiritual matters. He's the most qualified person to stand and minister in the temple. He's the most spiritual man in all of Israel. But as he offers prayers and sacrifices, he begins to hear whispers of his own sin. He begins to hear whispers of why he doesn't belong there. Maybe like you right now. And he begins to feel shame, at least a low-grade fever of shame, but it's coming from somewhere not inside himself. It's coming from somewhere outside himself. Something or someone is standing at his right hand, and that someone in this passage is called Satan. Literally, it means the accuser or the adversary. The wording literally means one who throws stones. It suggests this being acts like a prosecuting attorney just ready to hurl stones of accusation at this man who's supposed to be standing before God in the most holy place. Now, you might immediately start to wonder if such a being is real. We think of some figure dressed in red tights with a pitchfork standing at Joshua's shoulder. But this spirit is way more crafty than that. That's what this spirit wants you to think. He's way more dazzling, way more beautiful, way more evil. And without acknowledging that there is such a being or a source of evil in the world, we actually will never be able to truly grapple with the horrors of the world. In fact, in Revelation, this being is called the dragon, the serpent, the accuser of the brethren who stands day and night to accuse the brethren before God and remind them of how dirty they are. So, for example, there's this author who wrote a book called The Death of Satan. He's a professor at Columbia University in New York, and he's not a Christian. He certainly doesn't write from a Christian perspective. But in his book, The Death of Satan, he basically says that the idea that there's a source of evil like Satan, which has died in Western civilization around 20th century, makes so much more sense for why we have serial killings, ethnic cleansing, racism, systemic evil and injustice, even areas like the Holocaust, any other explanation like poor education, which you find in the proletariat, or uh, any other kind of social source of evil just runs thin. And unless you recognize that spiritual dimension in this world, we won't be able to really understand what's wrong with the world or work to even undo the depth of the disorder and the destruction. It's more diabolical than just poor education. Those are symptoms, but there's something much deeper, he says. Jesus explains it to his disciples this way. He says, the devil... He was a murderer from the beginning. 
and has nothing to do with the truth because there's no truth in him. He's a liar, and he's the father of lies. I mean, is it any wonder that teenage suicide is at an all-time high in our country at this moment? And unless you're willing to allow that conflict to be associated to something deeper than just sociological or psychological factors, you won't be able to account for the multifaceted nature of shame and depression and suicide and affliction. We often don't see ourselves the way God sees us because we hear the voice of the accuser. And do you know why we listen? Do you know why I listen? Because he's got a point. Our spiritual conflict is fiercer than we can imagine. We have an accuser and we listen because we know he's got a point. It's not entirely a lie. There's just enough truth in that shame to make me feel like maybe God would abandon me and forgive me. The second thing that Zechariah sees isn't just a fierce spiritual conflict. The second thing he sees is a filthy spiritual clothing. In verse 3, he now sees this high priest standing in the temple says verse 3, now Joshua, well, he was dressed with filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. What do others see when they see Joshua? They see the pastor. They see the priest offering up his priestly prayers, doing his priestly work, looking holy and pure and clean. But when the curtain is pulled back, Zechariah sees a man dressed in filthy rags. There's a verse in Isaiah that says, For we have all become like one who is unclean, ceremonially like a leper. And our righteousness, or our best deeds of rightness and justice, is like filthy rags or a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind. Take us away far from God's favor, hurrying us toward destruction. Joshua is Israel's best representative before God. He's the great Hebrew hope to be viewed as righteous or right with God in the world. But Zechariah sees this man too is polluted. His garments are just as stained as mine. And like you and me, all of Israel is unacceptable to stand before a holy and righteous God. Now, we don't exactly know what made these stains on Joshua's clothes. He's the representative before the people of Israel. So it could be personal. It could be communal. Guess what? Your actions affect me and my actions affect you. And... It could have been the failure on Israel's part to rebuild the temple, to actually do justice and love mercy and walk humbly before God. It could have been that they were falling into idol worship, which they had done, right? Money, sex, power, that's our modern-day idols. Which of us has not given into those temptations? It could have been that they had begun to marry pagan spouses and just said, well, I know God says X, but I feel like Y. 
And this was all, of course, against God's law. And because of their sin, they appear before a holy God in filthy garments. Joshua, the best of the best, is unrighteous, dirty. What is righteousness? That's the sense of wholeness. It's the sense that you're right with God in the world. It's the sense that you don't have to wonder if you're going to be found out for being a fake. You don't got to look over your shoulder and wonder if someone's going to find out. You belong. You have always done right in life. We have a righteousness gap in our lives. We have a deep fear of not being right in the world before God. And there's all sorts of ways that we try to be righteous. I'm sure that you've heard of the imposter syndrome, right? And at some point, you step into a new job or a new role or a new position, and you feel like, well, what if they figure out that I actually don't know what I'm doing? Well, we have a phrase for that, too. It's called fake it till you make it. And it works for a while, but it actually doesn't bring long-term solution because inside we have an imposter syndrome. We have a nonsense detector, we'll call it. We wonder, what if I don't belong? What if I am a fake? So we cover it up with more relationships, more money, more stuff, more clothes, more degrees, more cars. Whatever it might be for your particular context or your community that makes you feel righteous. For our community, for our context, it's more degrees. It's amazing to me that a friend of mine had told me that he led a retreat not long ago in this community. And there was a man there who was a scientist. He had five earned doctorates. And as he's exploring what his real fear is, he's saying, you know what? Weeping, I never feel like I'm what? Smart enough. The more I earn, the more I try to cover it up, it doesn't actually cover the righteousness gap that I have in my life. And do you know what that feeling of unrightness produces? It produces shame. It produces the feeling that I am fundamentally flawed at my core. I'm not worthy of being loved, especially by a holy God. And if I can't cover it up with some form of work or religious duty, then I want to hide from others, and I want to hide from God. Let me tell you how this worked in my life this week. I was at my daughter's school. We're very blessed. We have a scholarship. She's able to attend a very a great grade school. And while we're there, um, they're having an assembly, they're having a Christmas uh, little program. And my daughter, who was up here earlier, she was uh, asked to lead this part of this program with two other uh, students. And the question came up. They were, they were leading it, they were reading scripture, and they were guiding the, 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 the whole deal. And the question came up, Um, what do you guys do for Christmas? What are you doing this year for Christmas? And of course, it's a very, it's a prestigious sort of well-to-do school. And we're just 
faking it till we make it in there. <laughs> and the students say, well, we're going, we're flying to the moon, basically. <laughs> Our family flies to the moon every year. <laughs> and then we colonize it, we populate it, and we uh, get moon rocks, and then we return for a ski trip to Vermont. And of course, my daughter, because we're staying home to save money, and because we're going on a trip later in the year to go see family, she says, we're staying home, and we're going to make, uh, we're, we're staying home, and we're going to make um, cinnamon rolls, and we're going to have family time, and it's going to be really fun. And inside, I'm just saying, I am so unrighteous as a dad. I felt the shame for my daughter. I felt her embarrassment for her. It was the feeling of being back in junior high all over again. And immediately I thought, I got to step up my game, man. I got to figure out how I can earn enough to get to the moon next year. And Vermont. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, there's a part of me that wanted to say, babe, why didn't you tell him? Well, in March, we're going to California, you know? But right now, we're staying home just to save some money, you know? Why didn't you just say that to all your peers? To sixth graders? Why would I even think that? The wording is interesting in this section. Satan stood to Satan him. The accuser stood to accuse him of all the ways that he was not right in the world. It indicates an evil spirit whose primary passion is to accuse Joshua and all of God's people of all the reasons why they don't belong, especially before God, and why they should cover it up with works righteousness or more stuff in order to actually belong. God's people shouldn't be loved by God, he says. He shouldn't advocate for them. He shouldn't answer your prayer. And then, this comes out when things go wrong in our lives, doesn't it? There's times when we face suffering and we think, oh my gosh, God has forgotten me. He's left me because I've been found out. Voice of the accuser. There's a heavenly courtroom happening here. We have a fierce conflict with an accuser who loves to point out your dirty clothes for all the ways that Joshua might attempt to make himself right all the rules that he's kept, all the religious things he's done, none of it will make him clean. Only one thing will make him clean. And that's where the story takes a turn. Verse 2, the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. May the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Isn't this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? This scene is something like a heavenly courtroom. The accuser stands next to Joshua to prosecute him. He's just pointing out the facts, man. This guy's dirty. This man's guilty. But then the Lord tells the accuser, Satan, this is a stick that's been rescued from the fire. You have no right to condemn him or to accuse him. He belongs to me. What does this mean? Well, think about it. If a stick is pulled from a fire, it stays burning. If you pull out a stick from the fire, it may burn for a little while longer, but the fire eventually goes out. And then once it goes out, it's still charred. 
but the fire is out and it's been saved. And somehow, Joshua, like all of God's people, who God chooses in some crazy way to redeem them and draw them in, they've been pulled out of the fire of sin and judgment. The char, the pollution, still remains, but the condemnation is gone. The guilt is gone. How is this possible? How is the stick pulled out of the fire? How is Joshua not condemned in this heavenly courtroom? It's because the accuser isn't the only one standing by his side. And listen, the accuser isn't the only one standing by your side right now either. Notice Zechariah says in verse 1, Joshua was also standing in front of the angel of the Lord. All caps. Why? Because most scholars believe that the angel of the Lord represents the pre-incarnate Christ, or it's Christ before the manger. Satan, the prosecutor, wants to shame him, wants to accuse him, and say, you haven't really been rescued. Look at all the ways you still struggle with the same old stuff. You're still unacceptable before God. But along then comes another to advocate for him. Verse 2, Jesus Christ, the righteous, stands at his side as an advocate to defend him. It says in verse 4, so the angel of the Lord spoke to those standing before him. I want you to take off his filthy garments. And then he said to him, do you see? I've removed your guilt from you and I will clothe you with splendid robes. Take off his filthy garments. Son, do you see what I've just done for you? I removed your guilt and I've clothed you with righteousness. This shows us that the doctrine of justification by faith goes far beyond mere forgiveness of sins. When you trust in Jesus by faith and follow him, your sins don't just go to him. His righteousness goes to you. The message of the gospel is that for all the ways that I might attempt to run from God, turn from God, for all the ways that I try to cleanse myself and get more stuff, get more money, belong in a better way, in a stronger way in my daughter's school to be made whole, it's only through faith in Jesus that I'm clothed and robed in full righteousness in Christ. And man, especially as a, a, a person who serves in a church context, that doesn't make me clean. It's the righteousness of Christ that makes me clean. And here's my point for the day. Advent points to a coming advocate. A defender who stands at your right side. The New Testament said he's always living to make intercession for you. He's always living to stand up on your behalf. So has God forgotten you? No, he's come to stand at your right side. He's come to stand right beside you. That's what Advent means. 
Advent means an advocate has come to cleanse us. What does God see when he sees me? I tend to think that God sees my filth. He only sees my lack of faith. He sees all the ways that I haven't loved others. He sees all the ways that I moan and complain. God only sees my unfaithfulness. I became a Christian when I was 21 on October 26, 1997. I came home after a night filled with debauchery. Tried to go to bed around 3 in the morning. I had a vision. I had the spiritual realm pulled back. And in this vision, I saw a spiral. And I saw myself on a slippery slope going down that spiral. And I got up, and I pulled out my children's Bible that had been given to me when I was 12 years old, still had pictures in it, like illustrations. And I just, Bible roulette, they don't get that word in, in, in London, Bible roulette, And the first thing I came to, Isaiah chapter 1, and it was like God was speaking to me that I was filthy and that I was in Joshua's situation. And then it came to verse 18, and it says, But come now and let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they'll be like wool. Zechariah sees himself, something that catches him off guard. He sees the angel of the Lord so eager to remove Joshua's filthy clothes and replace them with clean garments. In other words, when God sees Joshua, he sees him as a man who is not filthy, but radiant, a man of beauty, cleansed, clothed in strength and righteousness. And it fills Zechariah with such joy. And he's like, this... This does something in Zechariah. He's like, well, hey, man, if he's got clean clothes, put a clean turban on him, too. Look it. He just blurts out. It's just, it's like Tourette's in the Bible. He says, uh, verse 5, then I said, let them put a clean turban on his head, too. So a clean turban was placed on his head, and then they clothed him in garments while the angel of the Lord was standing right by him. You see, when the Father sees me as a follower of Jesus now, through faith in his righteous son, he sees me not in my filth, he sees me clothed in righteous robes of Christ. I remember seeing an, an old episode of Cheers. And now my daughter goes to school right next to Cheers. Um, it was, if you don't remember Cheers, it was a popular show in the 80s, and I feel really old if you don't know what the name of the show is. So... Uh, in the show, there's a bartender by the name of Coach. And he has an adult daughter, and she's very, very homely, kind of awkward. She doesn't have a lot of dates. But in this episode, she finds a guy who's interested in her. And by the end, he dumps her. And she goes back to her dad, and she's angry. And she's crying, and she says, you lied to me. You lied to me, and you kept telling me I was beautiful. You kept telling me I was the most beautiful thing you'd ever seen. Well, if I'm so beautiful, then why can't I get a date? Why can't I find a man to love me? Shoot, man, I'm getting... And her dad, this coach with tears in his eyes, he looks at her and he says, baby, I've never lied to you. You're the most beautiful girl I've ever seen. And he pulls out his wallet and he shows her a photo and he says, do you know who this is? 
And she says, well, that's me. And he says, no, it's your mother. Your mother was the most beautiful woman I, I, I ever knew. And when I look at you, I see your mother. You're the most beautiful woman I've ever known. And Jesus is the advocate who comes along and says, yes, there still may be residue of stain in your heart, but it can no longer bring you into condemnation. You belong to me. You now have my identity, and you now have my clean clothes of righteousness put upon you so that when the Father sees you, it's like seeing a picture of his son, the most beautiful one he's ever seen. That's what the gospel says. And you know what? Some days I believe it. And when I do believe it, man, it sparks my soul with so much joy. When I'm not overcome with doubt and fear and faith, and I'm looking at my own righteousness, man, it fills me. He's our advocate who steps up and says, I've stripped them of their dirty clothes. They're not guilty. They're robed in my beauty. There's a song, an old song, based on Isaiah 61 that says, He gives me beauty for ashes the oil of joy for mourning, the garments of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that we might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. Advent says, an advocate has come to cleanse you. But lastly, Advent also says, an advocate, advocate will come to bring ultimate security says in verse 8, listen, Joshua, the high priest, you and your colleagues sitting before you, indeed, these men are a sign that I'm about to bring my servant, the branch. Now, it's called the branch because it's speaking of the pre-incarnate Jesus. John Calvin says, Zechariah compares Christ to a sprout because he appeared to spring, as it were, from nothing. The branch came from Nazareth. It was a shoot that came up from the ground in the most unexpected place, but it's coming, the branch. You know when you're sliding down or when you're uh, on the rapids of life in the world and you think that nothing's going to slow you down and you just hope for a branch to catch you as you're about to go off the cliff, that's security. And that's who this branch is. And then I want you to notice the phrase, these men, they're a sign that I'm about to bring the branch. In other words, not Joshua, not Zechariah, none of the leaders of Israel are your true hope. They're a sign of what your true hope is. Everything that is good in the world, even leaders amongst Israel, they're just a sign. And a sign is never the destination. The sign is just always pointing you. The most godly people you know are always just pointing you to the true destination, the real security, the branch. And then he says, notice the stone that I have set before Joshua. On that stone are seven eyes. I will engrave an inscription on it. This is the declaration of the Lord, and I will take away the guilt of this land in a single day. Why? Because Advent also reminds us that this Messiah will come again. He will come not just as a branch, but as a stone. The stone is the symbol of the kingdom of God. It represents the kingdom of the Messiah King. The prophet Daniel predicted that the Lord Jesus Christ would crush all. This stone would crush those who didn't bow before him. And all who fell on this stone would be broken in the most beautiful and humble way. The branch and the stone will come 
at the final advent to bring our ultimate security. And the chapter closes with a millennial blessing that follows the return of Christ. God's people are seen sitting under his vine, under his vine tree, indicating security, peace, wine, joy. The reign of the branch of David will come and bring the security that no job and no home and no relationship can ultimately bring. He came to cleanse us, and he would come again to bring our ultimate security on that day for all who've called upon his name. Have you called upon his name? If so, then you have an advocate. The Lord has not forgotten you. You have an advocate, and because of that, you can now take action in the world. Two things. Number one, remind yourself and your accuser of your advocate's righteousness every day, moment by moment. We did a men's retreat last year where three men were assigned to stand in front of one man and tell him lies over and over again why God, didn't, why God wouldn't be there for him. And they were to have one man behind him whispering in his ear, reminding him how he was in Christ and he was the beloved. You need to remind yourself and your accuser of your advocate's righteousness. And then secondly and lastly, I love the way Zechariah intercedes for Joshua. He's like, well, if that's the case, then put a clean turban on his head. Cleanse him. And you and I, because you have an advocate, you can take action as an intercessor on behalf of others. Today, when we respond now through the Lord's Supper, bring those who are near to your heart, intercede for them, pray for them, pray how God is working in their life, and then encourage them and say, Jesus is by your right side. God hasn't forgotten you. This is the good news. Dear Father, help us walk in belief. Thank you, Jesus, for your words to us. Thank you that you remind us, Lord, even.